Well, let's turn to the Word this morning, Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 through 46. Let's pray, though, before we open the Word together. Our Father, we pray that You would take this Word and that You would sow it in our hearts, that there would be true refreshment for us this morning. We would find that You are refreshing our souls amidst the people that you have drawn us together with before your throne, and that we would know that we have heard from you. May this word not fall on deaf ears or on cold souls. May your word be living, truly living in our presence by the living spirit, and may it find fertile soil for planting. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 26, verse 30 through 46. This is the holy and errant word of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, 
This text is a Mount Everest of a text in Scripture. It is one of the few texts, maybe the greatest text, where you and I get some kind of insight into the trials of our Lord. Maybe no account is more agonizing in all the Scriptures than this account, except maybe the crucifixion scenes. And yet here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we get a glimpse into what He was going to endure in those crucifixion scenes. And so in many ways, this is one of the chief peaks in all of the Scriptures for understanding our Lord and our Savior. So having said that, I want to remind you that as we come to this text this morning, we stand on holy ground. This is ground that you and I should tremble a little bit as we stand on it. I've trembled this week thinking about, ah, how do you tackle what is happening in the life of our Lord and Savior when He's in that garden of Gethsemane as He looks at the future cross and His future crucifixion? So I want to encourage you this morning, I hope you do this every Sunday, but this is a gentle encouragement this morning. Would you be praying all through the service, just punctuating our time together with prayer where you're praying, Lord, help us not to treat this as common, help me not to treat this as common, help us to understand this text, help us to meditate upon this text, help us to apply this text rightly. That's a good prayer for you and I just to keep populating the room with and assaulting heaven with. I want to do so this morning, looking at this text, just look at it very simply. I want to look at, kind of couch it, the two different parts of this text, the vow that Peter has taken and the vow that Jesus has taken, and then look at three applications in light of that. This text, as you know, follows upon what we have seen in the weeks before. Jesus has just spent time in the upper room with His disciples. They had gone to Jerusalem and they had gathered in that upper room to celebrate the Passover. And it was there as they were celebrating the Passover that our Lord and Savior instituted what we call the Lord's Supper. And as He was instituting the Lord's Supper, He told all of the disciples that one of them would betray Him. And of course, that one being Judas, and we know that Judas then left that upper room and he went out to betray Jesus. We come to the end of that upper room discourse where Jesus is speaking to them, instituting the Lord's Supper, and Matthew tells us here in, in verse 30 uh, that they sang a hymn at the end. They sang together. This was no doubt a psalm that they sang together. It would have been from the Psalter. This would have been part of the festivities of what they observed in celebrating the Passover. And I want you to stop and just think about that for a moment. Here are the disciples and singing a song of praise to the God of the heavens. And here is the Son of God that is mixing His voices with theirs as they are giving praise to God the Father. It's not so odd in that scene. It is, uh, I think of like Psalm 22 in that messianic psalm where the first half of it we have 
these words put into the mouth of our Lord and Savior where He is speaking about His crucifixion and what He'll suffer in the crucifixion. And then the last half of Psalm 22 is very interesting because it presents Him as a worship leader, that He is leading the congregation in song. Same Savior, the same Messiah. He's doing that this morning. You and I often don't think about this, but it is not John Anderson that leads our worship. It was one of the things that we made very clear when he came here. He wanted to make clear, I'm not the director of worship. I direct music, but the director of worship is the Lord Jesus Christ. He leads us in worship. And so even here, he's leading his disciples as they sing in praise before they leave that upper room. They leave the upper room and they go to the Mount of Olives, a journey there. And there, along the way, Jesus prophesies once again what is about to happen. He informs them that every single one of them will fall away because of him, he says that very night. And you think if hearing at the table that one of them was going to betray him was a shock to them, this must have just rattled them all completely through and through to hear that every single one of them was going to fall away from him. Because hearing that one was going to betray, they could have all said, well, maybe one of us, but it's not me, right, Lord? But now he says to them, every single one of you, Judas has already gone out from them, every single one of you is going to fall away because of me. He's the shepherd and they are the sheep. He says when he is struck, he prophesies, quoting from Zechariah, when he is struck, they will scatter. But notice that as he speaks about in John 10, he is the good shepherd. He is very unlike you and I. If we were to tell all of our closest friends, you're going to scatter when I am in my moment of greatest need, we would have quickly followed that with rebuke. How dare you? That's not what Jesus does. He's a tender shepherd, so unlike us. He grants comfort immediately by telling them that he will rise and he will go before them into Galilee. They're going to abandon him, but he's not going to abandon them. In his hour of greatest need, they will scatter, but he will not forsake and leave them. You all fall away, but I'll be raised up and go before you to Galilee. What comfort. But lovable Peter, he's not comforted. All of his zeal that... We appreciate about Peter, though he is lacking in knowledge, he responds with a vow in verse 33, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I vow it, Jesus. Remember me, Jesus. I'm the one when we were at Caesarea Philippi that as we stood there and you asked, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That I was the one that came forth and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was me, Jesus. Remember when you were out on the water and it was me, Jesus, who walked out to you on that water. I'm a man of faith, a man of devotion to you, Jesus. Surely I will not betray you, Jesus. I would rather die than betray you, Jesus. 
Jesus informs him that he will deny him three times before that rooster crows. But Peter doubles down. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And Matthew tells us, and all the disciples said the same. So why, said Andrew, so why, said Thaddeus, so why, said John, so why, said James. Just one chorus. Vows made in complete ignorance. I don't know what they are saying. None of them will keep it. Why is it that Peter and the rest of the disciples stumble into making such a vow? It's because they don't know the weakness of their own flesh, even in the light of the knowledge that the Lord Jesus is speaking to them. They don't know the weakness of their own flesh. Yes, Peter, the spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. There's that constant refrain over and over in the Scriptures that God gives grace to the humble, but that He hates the proud. Proud of what? Well, proud of our own persons. Thinking that we have strength in our flesh. We have the ability. Humble for what? Who are the humble? Humble in what? Humble in themselves. They know they don't have that strength. We, we often think much more of ourselves, have much more confidence in ourselves than we think. Peter thinks, ah, oh, look, I confessed you when nobody else was. I walked on water when nobody else was. Surely, if I make this vow, I will carry through. And what he doesn't understand is all of that was supplied by his Savior. Often what goes through my head is uh, when I was a church planter years ago, we were planting at this little elementary school down the road before they remade it, Glencairn Elementary School. And uh, as a church planter, you're trying to find any space you can to meet for worship. And so we would worship in their gymnasium there, and that meant that we had to set everything up every week. And so I would get there an hour, hour and a half before every service, and I would get there and I would set up all the chairs, and we would have to put out the pulpit and. What I did every week is I had this box that was about this big that was in my trunk of my car that had all the Bibles and all of the hymnals in it. And I had to carry that box in every week and put it in, the, in that auditorium and put out all the books, the Bibles and the hymnals out on the chairs. And remember one week when Ethan was only three or four years old and stood about this tall. I remember we were at the trunk of the car, and I'd opened it and was getting it out, and he said in his little squeaky three- or four-year-old voice, I want to carry it. And you've all done this as a father or mother or a grandparent. You, I said, okay, son, and took that box out of the car, and I said, put your hands out like this, put your arms out, and then I put that box in his arms, and just enough weight so that his little muscles were just kind of straining. And what would have been a heavy box to carry in now was a very heavy and awkward box to carry in as you're walking like this. And he believed he was carrying it in. And so proud. That's his father that was carrying it. That was bearing all the weight and just giving him enough weight so that he felt felt like 
he was contributing. But it was all on me. All the assurance that that box was getting into that room was based upon me. Peter, whatever you have confessed, whatever you have done, whatever you know, it's all of grace. So confident in your flesh. It's all of grace. He's the shepherd and they're the sheep. As they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is troubled. He takes eight of his disciples and he puts them on the outside of the garden. And then he takes his inner three, Peter and James and John, and he goes further into the garden with them to pray. So it's a very familiar place for Jesus to go in and pray. John will tell us in his gospel in John chapter 18 that Judas knew this place, and he knew this place because this is where Jesus often went to go and pray. He's not seeking to avoid what he knows is coming. He's not seeking to avoid his arrest, and he's not seeking to avoid his death and his burial. He knows that Judas knows that he will be in the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes into the Garden of Gethsemane voluntarily. But that doesn't mean that it was easy. He goes voluntarily, but with anguish. He takes the inner three with him into that garden, Peter and James and John, these two sons of Zebedee, and these are the three that have been closest to him in his earthly ministry and in his earthly life. They are the three that were on the Mount of Transfiguration with him and saw him in all of his glory and heard the Father say from heaven with that voice, this is my son, listen to him. They're the three that have been part of the most intimate conversations that Jesus has had, the most intimate teachings that He has conveyed. It is these three that He was closest with in His earthly life. And He takes them with Him. They'd seen Him at His highest on the Mount of Transfiguration, and now they're going to see Him in His lowest. Verse 37, Matthew tells us that He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Sorrowful even to death. And so what does he do? He gathers together his friends. And he gathers together his friends. And he asks them to go with him and to comfort him and to pray for him. His friends. He asked them just to watch with him as he went a little further to pray. And there he fell on his face prostrate before his Father in heaven. Why? Because the Lord of glory is troubled. And his sorrow, in his sorrow, he seeks his friends. He brings them in to comfort and walk alongside of him to pray for him. And yet there are too many Christians who enlist too few supporters in prayer for too little of the things in their life. There is no better service that you and I can offer one another than to pray for one another. If the Lord of glory in His moment of agony gathered together friends to pray for Him, that in a very real sense He needed it and He desired it, how much more so you and I? Pray for one another. 
That's one of the things I love about URC. I love that you are a praying church. I love, I love that prayer chain that we have, that email blast that goes out. And so many of you take advantage of it, and you put on there a, a prayer request, and then it goes out, and hundreds of people begin praying. I've had two different families come to me this week and say, we knew the love of this church, but we didn't realize it until we sent out that prayer chain, how much that love meant. We sent out a prayer request, and we have been getting nonstop emails. We're praying for you. We gathered some people to pray for you. We met here to pray for you. It's pride to think you can go it alone. Jesus himself did not seek to go it alone. But you'll notice that he ultimately turns to his Father because Christ knows that the Father alone could ultimately give him the rest and the relief that he desired. He pleads with the Father. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. This cup that has his soul so troubled to the point of sorrow even to death, he says, to think of our Lord, this Lord of glory, on His face prostrate with a troubled soul so severe that He says it is like a living death to think upon it. We have to wrestle with why. I think many look at this and you think, well, this doesn't feel like much of a noble death. Someone like Socrates, who was celebrated throughout history, he, he went the way of a noble death. He went without complaining. He became a martyr. And there are others that have done so. Great Christians that have done so have gone to their death willingly, voluntarily, without any kind of complaint. Is this a lack of faith and faithfulness on the part of our Christ? As one theologian said, he said, it is not that his faith was shaken, but that fear was awakened. This isn't a lack of faith that he's running to his Father. It is faith that runs to God in trouble. I've had this conversation with multiple people this week, both within our church and some outside our church, some pastors outside of our church, who have been racked with this feeling of guilt of thinking, I am going through very high waters. I'm going through this time of trial. I'm going through this time of suffering and this time of tribulation. And I find that I am running to God in prayer and I'm saying to Him, I don't want this. And the question is, is that a lack of faith on my part? I don't want this. A lack of faith. And I've reminded each of them this week, Jesus was the greatest man of faith that has ever lived and that has ever walked on the face of this earth. And yet here he is crying out to his God and Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And he doesn't just pray it once, he prays it three times. The same thing, Matthew says. But notice... Matthew tells us about the end of his prayers. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, your will be done. It's the same thing that he taught us to pray when we are to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Faith complains not about God. Faith complains to God. And then we rest. We rest in His will and submit to His will. That's faith. And what was Jesus' ask in the prayer? It was that in His flesh, in His flesh, He desired not to drink this cup. This cup is referenced throughout the Old Testament Scriptures to speak about the wrath of God. And we'll just take one verse. We could go to multiple places, but Psalm 75.8 will serve as an example. It says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed And he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. It's the wrath of God. It is the wine of God's fury. And Jesus desires to be spared from this suffering. He doesn't want to drink this cup. But notice that he's implying that if this is the only way to secure the salvation of God's people and to accomplish the will of the Father, He willingly desires to undergo this suffering. Yet, if there is any, any possibility of honoring the Father and still securing the salvation of the elect of God apart from this suffering, then He is asking for it to be done. If this can be accomplished without me having to drink this cup, let it be done. But if it can't, then let your will be done. It's not a lack of faith. It's faith in action. He looks to his Father as one who is truly human. The writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. If there was no anguish in Jesus, no such terror and fear, then there is no way that He was true body and true soul. In fact, He had to have this desire. If he had not desired to escape from it, it would have been the greatest sign of pride and foolishness and hatred towards God that there could have ever been. Because he knew what this meant. In his divinity, he knows all that this means. Father, whom he has eternally loved and been loved by, The judge whom he has honored was going to heap wrath upon him and count him among sinners. Sin which he has utterly detested he would now become. Death and darkness which are antithetical to him as the creator would now swallow him up. And yet, yet even knowing this, I think... We still know all of this, and yet we still struggle to comprehend why is it that there is this much anguish in him? It's not his sin. It's not his guilt for that sin. Surely there's some comfort in that. 
feels like a, a legal transaction. It's nothing more than a transaction by which mercy might be shown to sinners. Christ himself knew that he didn't commit these sins. He took on our guilt. The sin was not truly his. Wasn't there comfort in this? Hugh Martin, an old Scottish Presbyterian pastor from the 19th century, has maybe written more helpfully, I think, on the crucifixion than anyone I have ever read. I have lean upon him a lot this morning because he has so shaped my thoughts over the years as I've read him about the crucifixion. But he pointed out that there really isn't a great way for you and I to understand. We can't truly understand what it means for a holy being to have sin imputed to him by the just judge of all things and what effect that would have had upon his holy soul. And yet, as he argued, the closest we can get is that there is a shadow of an illustration within our own lives, Hugh Martin would say. There's a shadow by which we can maybe begin to understand it. But it comes not by comparison, but by contrast. He says, maybe we can come to understand the sorrow of our Savior and having sin imputed to him and the wrath that awaits him as he prays in the garden of Gethsemane by thinking upon the joy that we now, by virtue of imputed righteousness given to us, enjoy. By contrast, the Scriptures are clear in this connection and contrast, often tie these together. Paul will write in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He says in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Christ knows in the garden that his death upon the cross accomplishes and seals this glorious exchange, his righteousness for our sin, our sin for his righteousness. And so, why such anguish? Well, you think, you think upon the joy that floods our minds and floods our souls in thinking about the righteousness that has been given to us. It's not ours. It's not our accomplishment, but it now belongs to us. It now marks our persons. We have exchanged our sin-stained robes for the robes of righteousness. We now know that the mercy of God is aimed at us rather than the wrath of God. We can now rejoice and we know that we can now boldly approach His throne because it is a throne of grace to us. And so the opposite was true of Jesus. It's not His own sin, yet it now belongs to Him. Joys we know and will know are in contrast, though but shadows of the agonies he experienced because he exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness. You think about it, and you think, well, why is our joy not limited? 
Because it is a true righteousness we received. And so his agony and sorrow was not limited because it was a true unrighteousness that he received. And you'll notice for all of us, the fact that the righteousness is not our own, but was actually given to us, makes our joy even greater. It's not mine. The righteousness was foreign to us, given to us. There is the delight that comes by virtue of this righteousness not being from us. It multiplies the rejoicing. And so, the agony of our Savior is multiplied because the unrighteousness was not His. It was given to Him. It was alien to Him. So, Greater was his sorrow and greater was his grief than we can possibly imagine. I think truly it will only be on that last day. It will be on that last day when we pass into glory. That then we begin. We just begin to understand what it cost him. We're there in glory with the church triumphant. Then we'll know just a little bit what he meant. My soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. We're surrounded by every believer through every age. Not just thousands, not just tens of thousands, not just hundreds of thousands, not just millions, but myriads. Myriads from every tongue, tribe, and nation, we shall be surrounded by all of these friends. And above us and around us and under us will be angels and archangels as we are all united in one voice singing in praise to this God. In this friendly assembly, All our enemies, death and hatred and disease and sin and poverty and want and demons and hell will no longer be waging war against us. On that day, I think on that day we'll finally begin to say, you know what, we used to talk about love. We used to talk about peace. We used to talk about joy. Now I know what we were talking about. Because we'll not just be surrounded by friends. But then we shall see our ultimate friend, the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of God in the face of Christ forever. And on that face that stares back at you and I will be a smile. A smile. Then, what will our joy be? It's in that moment, and I think only in that moment, that you and I will begin to have a shadow of understanding what it cost our Savior. He became sin for us. 
My soul was sorrowful, he says, even to death. And yet, he says, when he looks at that, he has all knowledge of what awaits him. And yet, he says, in the midst of all of that, he says, thy will be done. Peter makes a vow, and he has no such knowledge. Christ makes this vow, and he has complete and perfect and infinite knowledge of what this means. I often think if you and I knew with the vows that we take, what those vows often meant, oh, it, it is a mercy of the Lord that we don't know what they mean when we take them often. I think of that every single time I marry a young couple. I think, you have no clue. Just say, yes, I do. <laughs> you don't know. But the Son of Man knows. He knew. He knew when he makes this vow, it would require death, not to deny him. And he goes willingly. There's been no vow like that vow. Three quick applications. If you don't know Christ this morning, I want you to see him in the garden. Look at him in the garden. He is the Son of God. He is God of God and light of light and very God of very God. And he is trembling. He's trembling. Because he knows. He knows what it means to drink the cup of the wrath. And it makes the Son of God tremble. If you don't know Christ this morning, you should be trembling. Because if He didn't drink that cup for you, you have to drink that cup. You have to drink it. But here's the great promise of the garden. That all you have to do is look to him in faith. Because he drank that foaming cup all the way to the dregs. And so if you but place your faith in him, that cup has been drunk for you. He's drank it for all his people. And you'll see that smile. Christian, I want you to see from this passage... There is an answer to the question so many of you have. I want you to look at Jesus here in the garden, Peter here in the garden. So many of us wrestle with, is my love and is my faithfulness strong enough? Is it fixed enough? Is it sufficient enough? And the answer for you that is clear in the garden is no, it's not. I dare say that Peter was a better disciple than any of us in this room or in the room over there or streaming online. 
He confessed Jesus when nobody else had. He walked on water in faith. Not done that. And he folds. Because the spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. And you and I are meant to see this contrast as we come to this passage. Here is Peter who knows what is coming. Jesus tells him what is coming. He knows it. And in his flesh, he says in all boldness, you know what, I vow that that will not happen to me. And then you have the Lord Jesus Christ who knows what is coming and vows and carries it through. There is one that cannot keep the vow. There is one that does keep the vow. This is you and I. This is our Savior. Our assurance is not based upon our faith and faithfulness. It is ultimately based upon His faithfulness. What Peter could not do even for an hour, Jesus does. So you look to the garden. cost him so much. I often think about this when we're wrestling and saying, oh, I don't know if I'm the Lord's and if he'll keep me. And the answer is, if you have been the Lord's, then you are the Lord's. He's, he's not going to lose you. He says, I am the good shepherd. I came to seek and to save the lost. I know my own and my own know me. There is none that can snatch them out of my hand. He says to the Father in that high priestly prayer in John 17, I have lost none of all that you have given to me. Why has he lost none? Because the price paid is so great. He's not going to lose those that he paid the price for. It's his faithfulness. That is our assurance. And so you rest. That's what we rely upon. Finally, dear Christian, you and I are taught here that suffering does not mean abandonment. I think the Christian life would often be better lived by us if we more often ran to the garden and peered upon our Savior in this garden and had our mind's eye run to the cross. I've had this conversation multiple times this week as well. This is very natural for all of us. You go through a time of high trial and high testing or high tribulation, and the waters are high. And because our flesh is weak, and because we have an adversary, and because there is constant temptation for us in this world. The thought begins to go through our mind, maybe He has abandoned me. Maybe He's forsaken me and left me alone. You know, it's not a mistake when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father right before He departs from the disciples some of his final words to the disciples when he ascends to the right hand of the Father are, Lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. I'm getting ready to depart. I'm going to the Father. But don't you think that I've left you? Don't you think that I've left you alone as you left me? 
Don't you think that? You see, he suffered this in the garden, and he ultimately suffers this upon the cross so that you and I never have to suffer this. You're never left alone. Never. I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. His soul was sorrowful and troubled even to death. So that yours never has to be. And never should be. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and thanksgiving this morning. Thank you that you and the Son and the Spirit covenanted together in eternity past. That the Son would willingly and voluntarily come into this world to live and to die for sinners. Forgive us, O Lord Jesus, that we think so little of what it cost you. That the cross doesn't astonish us anymore. Forgive us that it becomes commonplace to us. Oh, may we resound with the church triumphant that no doubt singing similar to this hymn, How Can It Be That Thou, My God, Shouldst Die For Me. May that be a triumphal song that rings in our hearts and our minds to where we more and more wrestle with and contemplate and think upon and understand with increasing knowledge what it means that the very Son of God became sin for us. And drank that cup to the very bottom so that we might not. Forgive us for our coldness, our lukewarmness. And stoke in us the fires that only your grace can. By the power of the Spirit and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray this. And we sing to your praise. Amen.